Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 63 as we continue to study the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> Isaiah 63, where we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 today. We will be in Isaiah for the next few weeks, and then we'll be starting up Galatians after that at the, at the first of the year. So before we uh, come to God's word, let's go to him in prayer again. And ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, as we come again to your word, we pray that you would help us with it. Particularly as we come to a text that is seemingly so difficult. And only difficult because we don't like the truth that we read therein. Not because it's a hard truth or because it's a hard to understand truth, but because we are the difficult ones. And so, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would mold us and shape us by it, that we would be transformed by your word, that we would learn more and more who you are and how we ought to be as your people. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So as I read through this passage this week, there's a strong theme, particularly in the first six verses, this theme of vengeance. And it made me think of a movie that you're probably all familiar with, and if you're not, you should be, because it's one of the best movies ever made, and it's the movie Tombstone. And if you've ever seen Tombstone, you get a great picture of this idea of vengeance. As, or as Doc Holliday puts it in the movie, it's a reckoning. And this is the idea of settling accounts. Paying a balance that is due. <clears throat> but when you add vengeance, the idea of vengeance to it, the balance to repay is a wrong that has been done and you give it back in equal measure. You give it back the way that the wrong was done, you make it right again by doing it that way also. Without spoiling the movie, everyone, again, you should watch this movie at some point in your life for your own sanctification. <laughs> there is a strong theme of vengeance there. And there's even a biblical illusion that runs through the whole movie and we're gonna, that we're going to touch on today. One of the themes in our text today, again, is this theme of vengeance which has been building over the last few weeks. And I don't know if you've noticed it. It may not have seemed like it. As we've been looking at the last several weeks, we've been looking at the heavenly reality of the new heavens and the new earth. But there's been this sprinkling of vengeance throughout as the word recompense has been has come up a couple of times. And it carries with it this kind of idea that there is some wrong that has happened and now this wrong has to be made right. It has to be settled. And vengeance isn't just seen as an abstract thought in our text today, as something that is going to happen and happen and everything is good. But just like Tombstone, we have a very vivid picture of that happening. There's a target. There is violence. And at the end, that reckoning has been accomplished. 
We studied Revelation as a church together, and in that we saw a few pictures that were borrowed from Isaiah 63. And so we're going to look at that as well. And we're going to add verses 17 through 14, even though they probably belong in the next section of study. We're going to add that because I didn't want to just talk about vengeance today, which is, again, totally fine to talk about that in the biblical sense. But I wanted to bring it around to the reason that we don't need to fear these things as believers. And that reason is Jesus. So we consider the passage, we'll look at two main ideas, the Lord's vengeance and then the Lord's mercy. So with that, let's look together at the text, Isaiah chapter 63, looking at the first 14 verses. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 63, starting at verse 1. Who is this who comes from Eden in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his whose threads are in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to his, to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he has said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their afflictions he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy, and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up from the land or from the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put them in the midst of, who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go to the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make himself an everlasting name, who led them up through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock, that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So just for a bit of context, the last few weeks we've looked at this concept of the new heavens and the new earth, the redeemed people of the Lord finding an end of their long exile and being home with Him at last. And so it may seem a little bit strange 
for us to have these first six verses here about the Lord's vengeance in our text. But if you remember our time in Revelation, this isn't strange at all. While God has a people for himself, he intends to bring them home. There is also a people that are not his, that he intends to judge. And this is not some sick game that God is playing. These people are being judged according to their deeds. And because all people sin, all people deserve the wrath of God. And the imagery of Revelation borrows heavily from this book that we've quoted. And we'll show these parallels. And so turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. I think one of the issues that people have when they come to the book of Revelation is they see it as a standalone book, but it has like 400 Old Testament quotes in it. We need to root it to the Old Testament. God's word makes makes a lot more sense when we use God's word to interpret it. Revelation 14, starting at verse 14. And then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come and the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar and the angel who has authority over the fire, who called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress wine press of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So here we have a picture of two harvests. The people of God are represented by the grain in the first part that are gathered. The fields are, the, the, are white for the harvest. The second is the, the grapes representing the unrighteous people who were, who were gathered as well. And they were taken to the wine press. And the language there is graphic, right? There's so much blood that it was as high as a horse's bridle. And I don't know a whole lot about horses. But what I read is that that's about four feet and then dozens of square miles for a round. That's just a lot. That's pretty graphic. Why so graphic? Well, it shows us how serious the Lord considers his judgment of the unrighteous and the unrepentant. And John was seeing this vision, but this isn't a new idea at all. He's seeing the same thing that Isaiah saw when he saw this man returning from Eden, Edom, with crimson clothing. There had to be a reckoning, and his clothes told the story of that reckoning. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we come to a text like this, it might be easy for us to skip over passages like this, or maybe even apologize for them. I'm sorry that we have to do this today, but we really need to cover this. But this is one of the reasons why we, as a church, have decided we're going to preach through books of the Bible. We're going to teach through books of the Bible because it makes us come face to face with the character of God every week that we come to his word. As we see this side of God, 
It should either cause us to rejoice, like we see John doing in Revelation, like we see Isaiah doing in our passage today, and we rejoice, rejoice in that risen Savior who took that wrath that was owed to us, or it should cause you to repent and turn to Jesus. And if you're here and you're not a believer, listen closely, because there is a way to escape this wrath that is to come. That brings me to the first point, the Lord's vengeance. Back in Isaiah 63, look with me again at verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> so we have Isaiah here, and he's asking a question. Remember, we were the watchers on the wall from last week, and he had asking a question, Who is this that comes from Edom? Edom was to the south of Judah. Who is this that comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Basra. Basra was the capital of Edom. Who, who, he who is splendid in his apparel, Marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And Isaiah asks, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who tread the winepress? So again, if we go from Isaiah 62, we had this idea last week of the watcher on the wall awaiting to see the coming of the Lord so that their watch would be over and they see him coming, but he's not what they expected to see. Because he's coming from a particular place that they know of. This particular place is called Edom. Remember, Edom was the nation that was formed from one of Jacob's children, right? Jacob had two boys. Jacob, or Isaac had two boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, who spawned Israel. Esau, who spawned Edom. And remember that Jacob sold, or Jacob's twin Esau, sold his birthright for a bowl of red stew, as it were. Edom, the nation, showed the same tendencies as their namesake. When Judah was being taken over by Babylon, which is going to happen later, they reveled in it. They enjoyed it. And we read about this in the book of Obadiah. So turn with me to the book of Obadiah. It's between the books of Amos and Jonah. So if you find Amos, turn a little bit. And if you find Jonah, you went too far. It's because Obadiah is a really small book. So small, in fact, that it only has one chapter. And we're, all, we're going to look at verses 8 through 11 and verse 15 of this book, Obadiah, to give us an idea of what it is that Edom has done wrong. <clears throat> Obadiah verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and, uh, and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, that so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And you shall be cut off forever. On that day that you stood aloof, on that day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And then verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. There's that idea of recompense. Your deeds shall return on your own head. 
Obadiah is a short book. The whole thing is about the judgment of Edom. And what I just read shows us why they were judged. When Judah was being taken, Edom enjoyed it. They stood by as one of the captors. Rather than helping their ancient brother, they enjoyed to see Judah's destruction. And the Lord took note. He remembered. And he would have his vengeance. So this picture that we read in Isaiah is a staggering And understand what you're reading here. The Lord is returning from Edom with his stain, with his clothes stained. And those stains are red, which is a nod to Edom's namesake again. And Isaiah asks the question, why are your clothes red? And he even gives a hint that he knows why the clothes are red as one who treads the wine press. And so the Lord gives that answer. Verses three and four. I have trodden the wine press alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption had come. So understand what's going on here. The Lord trampled the people of Edom in an act of vengeance. We see this continued in verses 5 and 6. As he looked and there was no one to help. And then he was like, I'm just going to do this. And he did it. This is the wrath poured out on Edom. Upholding justice. Exacting vengeance against Edom for the people of God. And at first glance, we might want to shrink back from this. Or maybe even attempt to explain it away. Try to give some, well, you know, and then try to give some kind of nuanced understanding of what we're reading here. When this is pretty plain. In a world where Christianity is often accused of many things and Christians want to keep a certain face to the onlooking world. Well, these are hard things. It's really hard to explain away the Lord walking back with the blood of all of those people on his garments. And if you couple this with the words that we looked at in Revelation 14 today, it paints our Lord in a very different light. Rather than seeing sweet little Jesus boy, he is one who has stained clothes with the lifeblood of his enemies. And that lifeblood, I think, is being a little too nice because the actual Hebrew there in verses 3 and 6 is not lifeblood, but it's juice. It's easy to see why the translators wanted to change it. The church has tried to do many things on how the world perceives words like these and texts like these. Protect one, our Lord, who needs no protection at all. And all to paint a pretty picture for a world that has only ever done less for the church. Throughout the history of God's people, there have been many others who would see them destroyed. And those others have always met their match. 
when it comes to the God of the universe. It's no different today. In many parts of the world, Christians are killed like animals for what they believe. Rather than wanting to sugarcoat the rough edges of the Bible's presentations of God, we should join in prayer with the martyrs. And we see this in Revelation chapter 6. I'll quote that. If you want to read that on your own, that's fine. But in Revelation 6, the martyrs look to the Lord, those that have been killed for their faith, and they say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? One of the reasons I want to include part of the next section is because it shows Isaiah's response to this very graphic picture. He responds to seeing the Lord walk back with the lifeblood of his enemies on his garments. He doesn't shrink back from the Lord in his blood-stained garments. He doesn't cheer him on either, hoping to see more destruction. Rather, he recounts the love that the Lord has for his people. He recounts redemption. And though this seems like a measured third kind of option, make no mistake, it's not wrong at all for God to seek vengeance on those who have brought harm to his redeemed. At all. In the same way, it's not wrong for us to pray to that end. See that in Revelation 6? Read through the book of Psalms. You see it all over the book of Psalms. Those kinds of prayers are prayed. It's good and it's right for us to want justice. But the same God who will stop at nothing to get justice also went to the cross and wanted mercy. And just like him, we should also desire mercy while there's a chance for it. And that brings us to the next point, the Lord's mercy. Look with me at verses 7 through 9. This is Isaiah praying here. He just saw the Lord coming back from Eden or Edom, and he's obviously done a, a work of wrath. And here's Isaiah's prayer. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he has, for he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Isaiah's response to seeing the Lord arrive from Edom with blood-stained clothes is to remember the steadfast love of his, of his and to praise his name. In verse 9, gives us this reason, right, why we should praise him. That Isaiah's talked about over and over again, that in their affliction, he was afflicted. This angel of presence here is the picture of the angel of the Lord. And with pair, and pairing that with the days of old makes me think of the Passover. And right, what happened at the Passover? When the firstborn of Egypt 
were all killed. And the people of Israel were saved because the blood of the lamb was on the doorpost. Of course, pointing forward to the one who would take the affliction of his people, our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who would take the very wrath of God that we see being displayed on the people of Edom here. Our Lord Jesus took that upon himself. This picture isn't without difficulty. As we've read through this book, we we know that. We haven't read a book where only foreign enemies of God have suffered. That's not true at all. In fact, most of the judgment is centered upon the people of God in this book for their idolatry. We see that in verse 10. But they had rebelled. I gave them this great plan of redemption, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned the Lord turned to be their enemy and he himself fought them. And we saw this as we've studied through this book, right? In Isaiah chapter 10, you have this very vivid picture of the Lord wielding an axe and the forest is the people of God and he's chopping the forest down and he calls this axe well, he gives it a name. He says that this is the nation of Assyria. And he uses them to judge his own people. He used Assyria like a tool. And then he casts them aside to be swallowed up by history. This is not a God who takes his word lightly. His command to worship him alone as the one true God was serious. And Israel broke it. But just as serious as that promise is. To worship him alone as the one true God, so too is his promise to have a people for himself. That the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to the whole world. And that's where the mercy of God comes in. Because if it wasn't for the mercy of God, who could possibly stand as the Lord went about judging those nations who had sinned against him? Who could possibly say, well, see, Lord, we have all these nice things that we've done, so you can go ahead and skip over us. There would be no one who could say that. We would all be toast. We would be next in line right after Edom to be put in the great wine press of history and be flattened as God exacted justice on us. But because of his plan for redemption, he kept a people for himself and he instead exacted that justice on his only son. And to us, he had mercy. Isaiah, as he prays for mercy here, he recounts the days of old to the Lord. He's recounting them to the Lord. Of course, the Lord knows them. But he's reminding the Lord, these are the things that you've done. Recounting what he did for the people under Moses. Verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? And then he goes on and on and on to talk about this idea of his history. Look, this is the redemptive history of your people. These questions that the Lord or that Isaiah is asking of God are his own recounting of the mercies of God to his people. That time he brought them up out of the sea to lead them through the desert. How he led them to the promised land to give them rest. Even though they rebelled, he had mercy on them. 
I mean, think of your own journey on this earth. And you look all along the way. If you look along the way, you would see two things. You would see a failed child of God and an unfailing Savior who continues to have mercy all along the way. You could look back for any of us and you could do this. One thing that you can't do is look back and collect enough good works to make it right. Well, I have all these things. Surely this is enough for you to pass by me. It would never be enough. If we was left up to our own, we would all be found wanting. And that's the whole point. Mercy, by definition, is not deserved. It's not getting what you deserve. And understand this. We deserve 100% to be under that wine press with Edom. And as soon as we understand that, brothers and sisters in Christ, it will completely change the way that we see our relationship with God and it will change the way that we see the lost world. Should we pray that God would have vengeance on those who would do harm to the people of God? Yes. Absolutely. When I think of the evils of things like abortion, the persecution of believers all over the world, I want nothing more than for the Lord to go out and to obliterate his enemies. When I read about, for instance, read recently about Nigerian Christians who lost over 2,000 from their member in the year 2020, murdered by Muslim extremists for no other reason other than just being Christians. They were just in their churches. They were just having their get-togethers, and they were murdered. This wasn't a war. It was a slaughter. I want a reckoning there. Absolutely. I want that to be settled, but I can't do it. I'm not Wyatt Earp. I'm not Doc Holliday. There's one who can, and there's one who will do it. So what should we do, brothers and sisters in Christ? We should pray for justice. Absolutely, we want justice. But we should also pray for mercy. We should seek mercy. What separates Christ from any other of the possible saviors that are out there? In the world. And there's there's many. People are looking for just about anything other than Jesus to save them. And what separates them from all of those other saviors? All other false gods that we would worship. And you do worship somebody. Or something. Could be money. Could be approval. Could be addiction. Any one of those things disappoint. And they don't just disappoint. They punish relentlessly. And they only want more and more and more. Only Jesus gives something that we don't deserve. Mercy. We were his enemies. We were those who were next in line in the wine press. We were once those who deserved that. But instead he gave us the gift of eternal life. Instead. So what do we do with that? How do we treat others? In the coming weeks, as we have a holiday here um, soon, you're likely going to be exposed to others in your family or friends who deserve retribution, 
for past wrongs they've done to you, your family, something. You all know exactly when as soon as I said that, you probably had somebody come to mind. Yes, they may deserve that. But what can we give them instead? How can we show them Jesus? We give them mercy. Absolutely. Let God be the one who deals in vengeance. You deal in mercy. Show them Jesus, the one who gives mercy. And to be sure, there will come a day when his wrath will be settled. We have a picture of our Lord Jesus in stained clothing here in Isaiah 63. We saw the same in Revelation 14. Indeed, these things will be settled. And in that day, there will be no mercy, only wrath. Hear this. If you're here today and you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day to repent and believe. Turn from your own ways. Turn to Jesus. Call upon his name. Be saved from this day of wrath. But for those of us, in conclusion, for those of us who are in his number, let us rejoice that vengeance is the Lord's. And one day every wrong will indeed be made right. But in the meantime, let us always remember his mercy and be givers of his mercy. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we consider these words, we know in our own hearts we are quick to anger. We are quick to wrath. Even though we were once your enemies, we think that your other enemies should be toast and that we should get all the reward. But thankfully, Lord, you are slow to anger. You are slow to wrath. You are a merciful God. So, Lord, teach us to show mercy. Teach us to show forgiveness. Teach us to show others your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So please stand with me now as we sing our response to God's word.